And uh, so now we're going to be talking Formula E. We had a little uh, a snapshot of Formula E last year uh, in a panel session with Extreme and E1 Racing. This year, we are giving those three series individual session, and we're delighted to have Jeff Dodds, the new CEO of Formula E, who has brought a lot of energy into the series. So, Mr. Dodds, good afternoon, and thank you for being with us. There we go. Just unmuting myself. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure to join you. Thank you. Brad, on to you. Awesome. Thank you, Francis and Judy. We'll see you all here shortly. And uh, Jeff, welcome. I hope everything is okay where you are today. All good for me, Brad. Thank you. I'm sitting here. I was going to say in a very sunny London, but it's uh, it's evening here. So we're a little bit dusky, but we're all good. Thank you. <laughs> that is wonderful. All right, well, let's talk about Formula E. And uh, and obviously, in nearly a decade of existence, um, Formula E has become very well-known worldwide. But uh, let's just get your overview of exactly what is Formula E. Yeah, so I'm a relative baby here, Brad. So I'm only uh, uh, six months into my journey of Formula E as the chief exec, although I was working for our, uh, one of our big investors uh, uh, prior to joining here. But you're right, nine seasons in, about to start our 10th season. And uh, how can I describe it? I mean, it's a, it's the world's only uh, all-electric world championship. Uh, and I would say it's kind of at that cross-section. It's at the cross-section of elite racing, so elite motorsport, but also as a platform for educating around climate change and sustainability. Uh, Formula E being net zero from day zero, uh, very much focused on, on climate change. Uh, so we find ourselves sitting right at the crosshairs of those two uh, very important topics. Yeah, and that's incredible. And uh, to be able to do that and put on highly competitive racing as well. I will say this, Jeff, I know throughout yesterday in some of these that I had hosted, there were questions that were coming through about EVs in different racing series, and that's exclusively what you guys are. So yeah. I would encourage anyone who has a question, if you want to type it into the chat, uh, we'll Me try too. Yeah, work some of those in as well. Um, but you guys just had a, a pretty incredible season, and uh, and you guys are talking about it as the most competitive yet. Why is that? Give us a review. Well, so look, the so most incredible season because um, fan base grew by about um, uh, 15, 16% year on year. So we're up to about 350 million fans worldwide now, Brad. So, so seeing real growth um, uh, in fan base just ticking past uh, uh, NASCAR, actually, uh, in terms of uh, global fans, which I know is more of a US-centric uh, sport, but something we're super proud of here in Formula E. In terms of competitiveness, though, I mean, the racing season itself was the first year of our uh, Generation 3 racing car. Um, and what that delivered, it, you're always a bit apprehensive going into a new generation of car because you're not quite sure what you're going to get on the track. Um, but I think on Every single race we did over the year, you got triple digit overtakes. Um, in North America, we raced for the first time on uh, in Portland on the PIR. Uh, and in that race alone, we had over 400 overtakes. So a pretty spectacular race. And when we got to the last race of the year, which was in London uh, in season nine, there were still three drivers that could have won the world championship three teams that could have won the team championship and not to have a little dig at my friends in formula one you know you've got this juxtaposition of one series coming down to the very last race of the year uh, versus one that was obviously wrapped up pretty early on in the season uh, yeah which uh, it was very exciting as well and to see you guys be able to race in the u.s was pretty incredible also yep. uh, let, let's look ahead just a little bit uh, because next year just the 10th season for the championship so what can we expect as we look forward 
well, so I'm hoping for just as competitive racing. So the the, the last thing we want to see is is uh, any reduction in competitiveness on the racetrack. So uh, I think you can look forward to a highly competitive racing series. Um, in terms of venues, though, it's our 10th anniversary of Formula E next year in season 10, uh, obviously. Um, and uh, we have a couple of new race venues within the year, which we're very, very excited about. So uh, for the first time ever, uh, people will be able to see a, uh, um, a motorsport, a motor race in the center of Tokyo, in the city of Tokyo by the big site. So we're very excited by that. Um, we're heading back to China, which, as we know, um, you know, was hit pretty hard by lockdown. They've reopened for business in mainland China. So we're going to be racing in Shanghai on the GP circuit there in Shanghai as well next year. So so I think new venues for us, um, there may well be some small tweaks to the sporting format, which we think will be exciting for people, um, but hoping to see just as competitive a series uh, in season 10. Yeah, uh, as we are as well. I do want to ask you, um, Gen 3, and, you know, a lot of times, I mean, look, we've all grown up with internal combustion cars, and, you know, we yeah. certainly understand when we're uh, changing displacement or horsepower or different things mm -hmm. like that. Can you give us, you know, just maybe a, a quick overview of where we started with Formula E, say, nine years yeah. ago, and how the car itself has refined and advanced since then? Yeah, of course. So, look, all the obvious things, Brad. So, as you would expect, as time has gone on, the cars continue to get lighter, more powerful. In generation three, what you have is a three, uh, 300 kilowatt battery uh, that can advance to 350 kilowatts during attack mode. Um, if you compare generation one to generation three, I mean, the simple comparison for me would be when the very first race was held in Beijing nine years ago, uh, the cars had a, uh, had a max speed of about 225 uh, kilometers an hour. Um, and the 0 to 60 time or the 0 to 100, depending on uh, which uh, which currency you prefer for speed, um, was probably about three, three and a half seconds. Um, and here we are now, we'll head to Shanghai. So 10 years apart, two races in China, top speed about 100 kilometers an hour faster. The 0 to 60 time is down at about 2.6 seconds. And remember, the, the, the car itself has two motors, a front and rear powertrain. Only one of those motors is used currently for propulsion of the car. The other is used for regeneration of the battery. So if we were to open up both of those for propulsion, you're talking about 0 to 60 well south of two seconds. Um, so the cars themselves have become much more powerful um, uh, and, and that's led to a much more competitive racing series. Yeah, that's incredible. You know what? And this is a great uh, segue into a question that just came in from the chat as well. Are there any Formula E technologies or specific innovations that have trickled down to road cars? Do you see this happening more yeah. in the future? Brad, it's a brilliant question, actually. And for a number of our manufacturers, um, that's the primary reason they race in the series. So when I'm talking to manufacturers like Porsche and Jaguar and Nissan, who are part of our ecosystem, they use this racing series, not only because they're highly competitive um, uh, uh, organizations that love elite sport, but also because they use it as a way of delivering R&D for their electric vehicle platforms. So give you a couple of examples. Uh, Jaguar's electric platform is the I-PACE, so their electric vehicle is the I-PACE. So Jaguar um, developed uh, learnings and technology in the Formula E series that they were able to push across to their I-PACE that effectively increased the range of the I-PACE by around 10%. And that was delivered as an over-the-air update, software update to all of those I-PACEs on the road. So people were getting maybe 30 miles more effective range out of the I-PACE through technology that was developed um, on the racetrack. Nissan, very similar, the Nissan LEAF, 
They delivered 181% more efficient battery usage to the LEAF through technology they delivered on the racetrack. And I was, um, I had the great privilege actually of being invited by Stellantis to, to a DS um, uh, event that was held in the Motor Valley in Italy very recently. And I got to see their, I think it's called the E-Tense, which is a concept car that they're building uh, for DS that is effectively a road car built off the entire principal platform of the generation three racing car for Formula E. So they are developing a, a concept sports car off of the Formula E racing car. So absolutely that trickle down effect, we call it from, from race to road, that race to road journey is, is very direct. I love that. And I love the idea. Uh, imagine if we said, hey, you can get uh, two extra miles per gallon just from an over-the-air update. Well, with nice, the that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's 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 the EV uh, uh, effect of that. Um, you had mentioned uh, the the Jaguar and the uh, the EVs yeah. there um, early on in Formula E. Question from the chat: There was a support yeah. race series with what was then the new Jaguar iPace. Right. So yeah, with so many EVs on the market now, do you see the return of a production EV car support race? Um, I'm, look, I'm fully open to that. and we, we have had conversations. We have a couple of live conversations with potential support series. Um, it may be for slightly different reason, though. So what I don't think, we don't need a support series necessarily from a technology or a technical development point of view. I think if we looked at a support series, it'd be for a different reason. So potentially because we wanted to add to the fan experience. A lot of people bringing families to watch the racing series and they get to see free practice, they get to see the dual qualifying format and they get to see the actual race. But maybe there's time in the day to make it even more compelling by adding another race for them to watch. So I would look at it on that basis. The second thing is, if I thought it was an opportunity to bring more diversity into the series, um, so perhaps it might be a women only uh, support series, or maybe we'd invite younger drivers that were coming through the funnel, trying to get into motorsport, into a, into a support series, then I'm absolutely open to that. And, and as I say, we have a couple of live conversations, but we won't launch a support series for season 10, which starts in January. Okay. Uh, and, 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 and again, a great question and uh, pretty exciting to, you know, at least uh, hear about some of the things that are being talked about as well when it yep. comes to uh, the future of the race weekends in the series. Um, you had mentioned Portland last season. You're yep. going to go back for a double header of races this upcoming yep. season. So um, tell us about the increase and why, and then the U.S. strategy overall. Yeah, so Portland, I was at the, um, uh, I think the Portland race was my third race. That I'd, well, my third race in charge. I'd, I'd visited races before as a fan, actually, but my third race in charge. And um, I won't lie to you, there was a bit of apprehension heading into Portland because obviously it's a fixed circuit. Formula E is renowned as a street circuit or a, a city circuit setup. It's a fixed circuit. People weren't quite sure what to expect. Um, we were pretty much blown away by what we saw in Portland. As I said, 400 overtakes. Um, I got a chance to speak to a number of IndyCar fans and NASCAR fans who were there to watch the racing, and they were extraordinarily complimentary about what they saw, not just the, the racing, but also the setup and the infrastructure and the hospitality and the circus we bring to town. Um, so we had a great, we had great fun. I was also very lucky enough to see, um, uh, to spend time out there with Michael Andretti, and obviously Michael's won on that racetrack uh, many times. In fact, if my memory serves me right, he had a pretty exciting finish against his dad there in one of the races at Portland. Um, so I was able to, to chat to him about his experiences on the racetrack there. Uh, but North American market, critical for us, one of our top two or three markets uh, in the world, uh, alongside um, uh, China and some of the core European markets. So. Going back to Portland uh, for season 10 will be brilliant. 
and then from season 11 onwards looking to expand our footprint and bring even more races to north america yeah we actually had a question just come through uh mm. any plans for other races uh perhaps in in battery alley and i don't know if battery alley refers mm -hmm. to say the austin area it. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know Toyota is yeah. uh, uh, putting a battery facility in North Carolina yeah. and all of that. So it yeah. seems like a lot of opportunity. Yeah. And not just look, not just battery alley. So we West Coast, East Coast, incredibly important to us. So I'd love to have representation on both uh, the, the East and West Coast. But we're also talking to a number of other cities around the U.S. at the moment um, and not just um, in in what you might consider uh, new technology areas for automotive. We're also talking some of those areas that might have a rich history in uh, internal combustion engine as well uh, to try and bring new tech there and showcase uh, the development of, uh, of automobile manufacturing. But I would be very surprised in season 11 if we don't have two races in North America and then maybe beyond season 11 to, to increase to potentially even three races. Wow, that would be incredible. Are, uh, just from a curiosity standpoint, mm. are there any other doors that potentially open? Because one of the things, especially, you know, being a, a predominantly street series, when you go into a market, they're going to worry about noise. Are these cars going to yep. be so loud? They're going to break the windows in our sky right, yep. uh, scrapers. Yep. I mean, it's literally things that are talked about. You don't have the noise constraint. Does that help with conversations? Yeah, of course. It look, and, and a lot of the cities we end up in, Brad, are often because the city talks to us because they're trying to educate more around climate change and sustainability. And, and when we turn up in town, we try not to be too disruptive in building a circuit if we turn up in a city. Uh, so we try to do it as quickly and as efficiently as possible. And um, what you have then is a a number of people that are in the city that don't have to travel by public uh, by um, by car to get to see the race they can go by public transportation so you don't have this enormous amount of uh, of cars on the road to try and get to watch a race um we're also able to use our race as a, a way of educating around the need to focus more on uh, carbon emissions um climate change and this kind of drive towards net zero so we use ourselves not just as a racing series as an education platform and that very much appeals to the cities we race in and you're so spot on you know for a lot of people turning up with families particularly young families not needing to strap on the big headsets and uh, and, and the ear protection or worry about the smell um the fact that we turn up and it's a it's a clean quiet sport racing in a city center is 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 very appealing to the, the cities we talk to yeah, for sure. Uh, another quick question on the schedule, mm -hmm. uh, and let's just expand North America because we have a question yeah. about Canada, Vancouver, British yep. Columbia, more specifically. You think uh, uh, whether we whether we'd go back and race there, or whether we'd race in Canada? Yeah, yeah. So, uh, w without giving away too many trade secrets, I'm actually in conversation right now with a very large Canadian city um, who are keen to bring the race to uh, to themselves over the coming years. So no, when we talk about North America, we include Canada within that and from a geographic point of view. Um, but absolutely, Canada, we would look at Canada as well and are looking at Canada as well. Oh, that's wonderful. All right, uh, let's talk about the teams now. Um, do you have capacity for another US team um, or from anywhere else on the Formula E grid? Yeah, so look, our, ma our maximum number of teams, Brad, is 12. So in the regulations, the sporting regulations, we, we uh, agreed to a cap of 12 teams between ourselves and the FIA. And we currently have 11 teams racing. And those 11 teams are a mixture of, uh, of manufacturers, as I said, Porsche, Jaguar, uh, Maserati, McLaren, 
um, uh, Nissan, Mahindra, Neo, but also kind of um, uh, DS, but also kind of racing royalty. We have uh, um, the Andretti team, we have the Penske team, we have the AB team. So we've got this real lovely mix. Now, that 12th spot, so we have a 12th spot available, um, which is not one we want to give away. So it's not one we just want to fill for the sake of filling it, because we don't need to do that. We have highly competitive racing with 11th. Um, on the other hand, it's one that's available for a brand that brings something to the series. Now, you talked about a US manufacturer there. I would love to be having conversations with US manufacturers about putting a team into Formula E. Um, the reality is, up to this point, the conversations have probably been more active with uh, Chinese EV manufacturers or European because they're slightly more advanced in terms of the rollout of their electric vehicle platforms. But over the coming years, we've just started to talk to some American US-based OEMs. Um, and uh, of course, we would love to have an American manufacturer, US manufacturer on the grid um, because it, we're a truly global sport and the US market is one of our most important markets. Mm -hmm. And which is wonderful and certainly welcome here for sure. Um, uh, question from the chat going forward, what television yeah. coverage do you have planned? Is it possible to have coverage on a network that maybe is more readily available? So in the US, so around the world, we're, we're doing media deals uh, all the time. So our media reach is about 360 million uh, a year. Or it was in season uh, in season nine and we look to expand that into season 10. Um, we're heading back to China, as I said, so we're, we're about to announce, I can't say it on here because it's not official, but we're about to announce our Chinese media deal. We'll announce a new Japanese media deal as we head into Japan. And we announced earlier on in the year, a really interesting combination deal for media in North America. So with CBS, who have carried our races before, been a very good partner of ours. But we've also announced a deal with Roku. And, and Roku, I think, has about 70 million customers uh, across the world. Um, but Roku in the US, we will be the first live sport that Roku partners with. So when you land on the Roku platform, if you're watching the race through the platform, you'll be able to, on the landing page, see the tile for Formula E, go in and, and get a, a deep and rich experience around Formula E through Roku's platform and also watch the live racing. And therefore, if you're watching races through CBS as well, through the Roku platform, through that one portal, you'll be able to access everything we do in North America and everything we do around the world. Oh, wow. That's really cool. Uh, and, and that's some great coverage as well, um, for sure. All right. Um, let's look ahead to this next season. And uh, I, I know we talked about the competition on the racetrack. Would love to see uh, equal to that, if not more. But what predictions do you have for next year, Jeff? Oh, that's a big question. So that's a great question. I, I'd get shot by 10 teams if I gave you a prediction for who <laughs> I thought would be the winning team. Um, I, think the I think the competition will be bigger and better than ever. Um, I was lucky enough to get all the data through from our Valencia pretest that we've just had in Spain. Um, so I think I think it will be another highly competitive season. In terms of the locations, my prediction would be that seeing the cars race around the Shanghai Grand Prix circuit, the intermediate circuit there, will be brilliant because um, the Chinese fans are super excited about us going back. Um, and I think from race point of view, all of our races are great, but I think the two that I'm really interested in seeing is uh, the race in central Tokyo. I think that will be uh, that will be an incredible spectacle. Um, and also we're moving our Italian race next year. We moved from Rome in the city center and we moved to Misano in the Moto Valley, very famous for the MotoGP uh, races there, the home of, uh, of the doctor. 
Um, so uh, very excited to see um, our cars uh, racing in the Adriatic coastline down there in Italy, in Rimini. Um, the only other prediction I'd give you would be a, a real strong prediction on Max Verstappen winning the Formula One World Championship, but I don't think that's what you're asking me for, Brad, was it? <laughs> no, no, not quite. But I do know this. I, I, in, in my brain, I'm already vacation planning because... Um, yeah, well, I'll tell you what, we'd love to host you. It's, I can recommend Rimini, beautiful part of the world. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, not not just the amazing racing, but also the visuals and the destinations and everything yeah. else that you guys well, have. To you say that. Tokyo, I mean... Tokyo we're there we're racing during cherry blossom season which as we know is a very wow. short period of time I think it's only about two or three weeks that they have cherry blossom we're right there in the middle of that so uh Mrs Dodds has already booked her place uh at that race Brad but I think it's more for the cherry blossom than the motor racing <laughs> I, and I can understand that. And that's what's great about these being destinations as well. All right, uh, let's talk about sustainability. Um, and, yep. and if we move now to sustainability, this is where Formula E started, obviously. Yep. Um, tell us about the intersection of high performance and sustainability. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question. So when I explain what Formula E is, Brad, I tend to ask people to visualize the yin and yang diagram, that that icon. And on one half of it, we're an elite motorsport, a world championship motorsport that has sustainability at its core. And on the other side, we're, we're a platform for educating around e-mobility and the move towards net zero that has motor racing at its core. And um, we absolutely see both of those things together. They come together to make up what Formula E is. Formula E, when it was founded by the, um, by the Spanish businessman Alejandro Agag, when Alejandro founded the business, I think that year there were only 300,000 electric vehicles sold around the world that year. If you fast forward to now, it's nearer, I think, to 10 and a half million electric vehicles will be sold this year, and it's growing at about 20% a year. So the vision to set up a world championship nine years ago when there were almost no electric vehicles on the road, to see where it is today, and then to see where it might be, you know, when my children are driving their cars, they will have never experienced an internal combustion engine. They will only probably know an electric vehicle. Um, and the key thing for us, therefore, is not just delivering compelling racing, but also delivering a compelling story around the environment and sustainability. Now, we're rated the number one sport in the world for ESG, not motorsport, the number one sport for ESG in the world. Um, we're committed to science-based targets. I think we'll be the only sport in the world committed to science-based targets. And even though we are, we have such a focus on sustainability, we also committed through those science-based targets to reduce our emissions by 45% between 2019 and 2030. And we're already 25% roughly towards that 45%. So as you can imagine, there's a big team here that are fully committed and fully fixated on every part of our, of our chain, our supply chain, our business model, to make sure that we are as sustainable as we possibly can be. Um, and through season 10, we have some other exciting things we're doing in the space of sustainability that we will, that we will announce in season 10. But no, absolutely core focus for us. Uh, that is incredible for sure. Uh, you're participating in COP28 next week, and you've already delivered yeah. a message of, of global sport of give it everything to be more sustainable. Tell us about that. Yeah. Look, I think, you know, we sport is an incredible thing. So it's a passion for, for many, many people around the world. And every week around the world, there are multiple billions of people watching sport. So our view on this is if sport were able to talk about what it was doing to become more sustainable just for a week. Just take 
effectively one one week match and talk about the fact that they are changing things in their business model they've they've changed their approach to logistics or supply or transportation or done something to make themselves more sustainable the number of people they could reach with a message about change and positive change on a weekly basis would be billions and billions and billions so we're very lucky brad so we were born as a sport that's sustainable at its core net zero from day zero many many sports formula one 75 years old i think nascar roughly 75 years old you look at nfl you look at baseball baseball you look at the basketball you look at soccer these sports are much much older they didn't have the luxury of establishing themselves with a business model that was focused on sustainability but they're all doing something and our simple ask is to get out there to focus on that and communicate that more to your fan base so that you take the lead in educating them about some of the things they can do differently Mm -hmm. That's incredible. Uh, a couple of chat questions. We were talking about noise earlier, and, and this one's yes. interesting because there are some EV manufacturers who might, you know, give exhaust noise, you know, as yeah. part of it. But, yeah. um, you know, for older fans, uh, here's what it says. The noise or quote unquote music, as many of us refer to it, um, yeah. steps are being taken to attract those fans. How do you convince a, a, a petrol head, let's say? Um, yeah. E-racing is, uh, is just as exciting. Yeah. I don't know if the question, the person put their name at the end of the question, Brad, but Ben O'Connor, no, Ben. So, Hey Ben. So you and I have something in common. So I'm a petrol head as well. So I, you know, I've grown up watching all forms of motorsport. Nothing I love more than going to watch a, a race and getting that tingly feeling and feeling the vibrations kind of resonate through the body when I'm watching it. But we have this dilemma and the dilemma is this, that the sound you hear when, when cars are racing, combustion in cars are racing, that the noise is largely a function of inefficiency, engine inefficiency. So the louder the noise, the less efficient the engine is because that, that energy is not being used to propel the car forward or the vehicle forward. It's lost into the atmosphere and you hear that as noise. So the reason you don't hear noise in an EV racing is because the engines or the motors are like 98, 99% efficient. So there is no lost energy. So to try and create a noise, would effectively be trying to create the illusion of inefficiency. So I don't necessarily think that's a great idea. I also think if you think about the emerging fan base for EV racing, and as I say, we have a, a large number of fans around the world and it's growing very quickly, for a lot of those people, they probably won't experience, the youngsters coming through probably won't end up having much experience of an internal combustion engine. So, so they, won't, um, they won't feel the need to have the loud engine noise because it's when they get in their own car it's not something they'll be used to so i think where we've netted out is because we've looked at synthetic noise as well and artificial noise we're a very authentic business we don't like the idea of artificially creating anything um it would be a symbol of inefficiency which we're not sure we like the idea of either we think the world once everyone's driving evs people will be slightly less worried about the noise and don't take this the wrong way ben but as an art, you know, you may not be, but many of the petrol heads I've met and the, the diehard Formula One or MotoGP fans or NASCAR fans are pretty convinced they don't like EV racing because they're a traditionalist and it, it does, it's not the same as what they've grown up with. I'm not sure we should be spending all of our time and energy and money in trying to convince some of those people to change their view when we have such a huge opportunity out there for a new fan base.
Uh, and I think that's a fair way to put it. And uh, and as much as I love the roar of the engine, the feel, the everything, there also is something to be said about having a conversation with the person sitting next to you as you're enjoying exactly. the yeah. So. yeah, yeah. And by the way, I'll say it again. I love both. I get a huge kick from from watching a Formula E race and being able to talk to the person next to me about what I'm seeing. I also get a huge kick turning up at a MotoGP event or a Formula One event and getting that amazing feeling. So for me, I don't... Us trying to match them doesn't feel like the right answer. We, we have something different, which we're embracing. Well, Jeff, I'll tell you, we look forward to the, the innovation, the events, everything that you guys have coming up in 2024. I, I truly appreciate you coming on here today. And My feel pleasure. Like probably going to spend a couple hours even just answering questions from the chat, which has been I'll, great. We look forward to I'll it. Be back, I'll be back next year, Brad. Awesome. Thank you, Jeff. Thank you. You're great. And uh, Ben just said perfect answer. And Ben is right. And I know Ben. Thank ben, you, thank ben. you for watching us. So Registering on ePARTRADE is easy. To start, click on the Join for Free button on the homepage. First, search your company to see if it's already in our database. If you see your company on the list, click on it to select it. Then, choose Claim Company if you are one of the decision makers, an owner, marketing person, or main company contact. Or choose Join Company if you are an employee, and press Continue. If you couldn't find your company in our database, select Register a new company. On the following page, fill out your name, email, phone number, job title, and choose a secure password. If you chose Register a New Company, you'll need to choose your business type. Select Supplier if you're looking to display products or services and connect with buyers. Choose Racing Business if you're looking to source new parts and connect with suppliers. Choose Race Team if you own or are a member of a professional race team. Then, enter your company name. Please provide a website, Facebook page, or LinkedIn if you have one, and choose to either claim or join the company. You can view and agree to our terms of use here. If you'd like to receive our weekly newsletter, choose Accept. Finally, click Register Now and your registration will be submitted for approval. An email will be sent to your inbox. Please confirm your email address and you will be approved shortly. Welcome to ePartrade.